go ahead and take your Bibles this morning. We're going to start something new this morning, which I'm excited about. And we're going to be together for the next few months in the book of James. Um, the book of James is in the New Testament. If you're unfamiliar, if you kind of go to the end of your Bible, you see how much this is the end of my Bible. <coughs> so there's just this little bit left. The book of Hebrews is right before it. That's 13 chapters. So if you move towards the end, you'll probably find Hebrews and James comes right after that. If you hit First and Second Peter, you've gone a little too far. Um, but this morning we're going to be in James chapter 1 and we're going to read the first eight verses together. This is where we want to go together in 2017. Um, there's a lot of practical wisdom given in the book of James. And the place that we want to start, we want to together look at this, together begin to understand some of the things that... Um, that James is communicating to us, inspired by the Spirit of Christ. So if you're in James, let's read together. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 in the first chapter of James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith and with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind." That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James is a book that's given to us. And before we sort of hop into this text this morning, James is a book that's given to us um, in, in, and given to us in, in sort of a unique way in the New Testament. It's really considered wisdom literature, um, which we really don't see a whole lot of in the New Testament. It's primarily a genre that we see in the Old Testament. So before we get in here, I want to talk a little bit about sort of the historical background and context for James. And it's going to become, I think, incredibly apparent to us why that's important as we move through the book of James. And some of you are like, okay, I'm going to punch out. now. don't punch out. We're going to talk about history. We're going to talk about some things that, that were going on around the time that James wrote this letter. It's going to illuminate for us some of the things that James... I was going to say this later, but I think I'll say it right now. I'm just going to scroll down to my notes right here. Why would we do this? Why would we talk about historical context in a book? Why would we pick up our Bibles and read it in this way? Um... One, because I, I don't think that you would do this in any other sort of setting. I think somehow Christian culture has trained us to think that in a lot of ways historical context is sort of meaningless, when in fact it isn't. God intended to write this to, through his servant James, to a particular people in a particular time. And understanding the audience and how they would have heard this letter grants us insight into God's purposes, particularly here. And if we look at this through God's purposes, through the eyes which he was looking at the people that were being written to, it grants us a deeper understanding of who God is and what he intended to communicate to the people through his servant James. And then also getting a deeper understanding of this historical situation that we find James in and James writing in um, allows us to see that this letter was written with a particular group of people in mind. These are real people we're going to see with real problems in real situations that are real time. I think we come to the Bible a lot of times and we think we disconnect, right? We disconnect. But these were real people like you and I who were 
struggling with things in their world. They had real struggles. They were going through real problems in their day-to-day. And just because they live in first century Palestine or around that area does not mean that they weren't a real people. This book was not just dropped here. This letter was not just dropped here into this book for us in 2016 or 2017 now. Hey, (laughs) it was given to a particular group of people at a particular time. I've been saying 2016 for a long time. Hopefully I don't have to write a check today. And then lastly, I think the reason we want to talk about historical context and is sort of tied to the few things that we just discussed is that it's to tell us, remind us clearly that the Bible is not about us. The Bible is not about us. It's not about us. It is about God. It is God's revelation of himself to us. And this is a huge lie I think that Christian culture has fed to us for quite some time, is that the Bible is about you. In fact, it is not. We sit down with our cup of coffee in the morning, we read a few verses, and we ask the first question that pops into our mind is, how does this apply to me right now today? When in reality, our first question should be, what is this communicating to me about the truth of who God is? This is his word to us, not vice versa. This is not his word to us about who we are, and, but we, we find that understanding when we understand deeper who God is. So, for us this morning, we're going to come to this text, we're going to look together at these eight verses, but first, we want to understand why is James writing this book? Right? Why is he writing this letter to this group of people? You see that he addresses it to the twelve tribes. Well, first of all, let's talk about who James is. Who's James? And why is he writing a letter? James is the half-brother of Jesus. James grew up in the same household as Jesus, and he walked together with Jesus relatively intimately as a brother, sharing some, sharing a common family unit. Right, so he's the half-brother of Jesus. So as Jesus was moving around um, Palestine teaching, James would have been pretty in tune with what was going on because they would have seen each other at the festivals and things like that. They would, be, they would come together as a family. They would, they would, they would talk about what's going on in, in Jesus' life and his ministry. And Jesus would ask James, hey, what's going on, brother? How are you? Questions like that. Um, although James saw this, it's pretty apparent in Scripture, that James didn't really believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be until Jesus was raised from the dead. If you read in John chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, John records this. John was um, the disciple that Jesus had the most intimate relationship. John writes this regarding Jesus' brothers, of which James James was one. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Great. Now, the Jews' feast of booth was at hand. So he, his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, so the disciples might also may see the work that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So they were encouraged. His brothers were encouraged. Even though the people in Judea were seeking to, the Jews were seeking to kill him in Judea, his brother said to him, go to Judea. And then John says... He gives a little exposition here. For not even his brothers believed in him. James falls into that camp. So James does not believe in him. But Paul actually records for us something about James in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's writing about the resurrection. 
Paul writes this, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's this James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he also appeared to me. That was Paul writing that. So Jesus is raised from the dead, and then James believes who Jesus is. He says, okay, you got raised from the dead. That, that happened with, a lot, I'm sure in a lot of cases, Jesus comes back from the dead. He appears to people. They saw him killed, and then they believed that he, he was who he claimed to be. So James then goes on to become an influential leader in the church, and we can see that outlined in the book of Acts for us. He goes on to become an influential leader in the, the church in Jerusalem and ultimately becomes the head or sort of the leader in the church in Jerusalem. In the year 62, that's 62, no numbers in front of that, the year 8062, James was martyred. Um, most likely, church history tells us, most likely probably for being a vocal opponent of economic abuses and social abuses by the Jewish priesthood. And so as we look through the book of James, as we read through this book together and spend a couple months together in this book, we're going to see that the idea of partiality, the understanding of the rich and the poor, these come out in, a, in many different ways. And so we'll, we'll actually see that becoming more relevant as time goes on. Um, sometime in the late, late to mid-40s, about 20 years before James was martyred, or a little bit less than that, James was compelled to write this letter to a group of Jewish Christians, right? We can tell that because we see in verse 1, in that second half of verse 1, through the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Um, addressing the 12 tribes of the dispersion, he's indicating that the 12 tribes is a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel, this 12 sons of Jacob, which would have been like saying, um, hey, he could have just said, hey, to Jewish Christians living out there. Um, it's, it's just a fancier way of saying it. It's like you walking into a New Year's Eve party last night and greeting everyone as party animals, right? Which I'm sure that you all did last night, right? Okay, morning, everybody. Here we go, 2017. Um, I don't go to a lot of parties, so I wouldn't know. Um, the book of Acts, then, as we see sort of James outlined, his life outlined, and sort of this understanding of what happened, right? So in the, early on in the book of Acts, we see that there's uh, the first martyr that sort of takes place in the church is a man by the name of Stephen. Um, tons of people are getting saved. Um, Saul, who becomes Paul later on, is lurking and he's persecuting Christians. So Stephen gets martyred and many Christians then flee Jerusalem. They leave Jerusalem because they sense this persecution and they spread out and they plant churches all across the region, right? Their persecution then comes in different ways, various ways throughout the course of, of their time outside of Jerusalem. Um, it comes in so this social and economic persecution. But James writes this letter several years then after these churches were established to be circulated among them. So the churches would have met in homes. We've talked about this. In the New Testament church, what does the New Testament church look like? The New Testament church would have met in homes 
together, they would have got together, they probably would have eaten a meal, and if a letter was being given to them or brought to them, they would, they, would, they, would, they would take that letter and they would read it through in its entirety. And that looks a little bit different than what we do in our corporate worship setting. Obviously, we're doing something a little bit different here. But that's the way to do it. Probably just a couple of families, three families, four families, something like that would have gotten together in a home, eaten, and then read these letters. If there wasn't a new letter, they would have, which is probably pretty common, they would have grabbed an old one and read it through. Um, and then probably written it down and sent it out to other churches, other house churches in their area. So James then is writing to this group of Christians who is being persecuted throughout. And he sort of, he, he keys on some themes that are probably pretty hot button issues for them, right? He's going to talk about trials and temptations. We're going to get there this morning and over the course of the next few weeks. We're going to talk about the wisdom and the use of the, the tongue. We'll talk about that a little bit this morning. He's going to talk about wealth and the poor in particular. Um, and so that brings us then to our text this morning. Sorry for the information dump, but that's going to be helpful for us as we go through here. Those things will come up again. You can, if you didn't get it all, that's fine. We'll talk about it throughout the course of, of our time together in the book of James because it is going to be important to understand why, the, why James wrote this book to the people and who James is in particular. So again, this is a displaced, persecuted people in need of wisdom receiving this letter. Um, and that would just bring us then this morning to the big idea. We read this text. In particular, we're going to look at verses 2 through 8, um, the part that starts, count it all joy. The big idea then this morning coming out of this text is this. Although trials come, came early and often for James' readers, he prompts them to look through the difficulties of today and desire the wisdom of God to endure. Although trials came early and often for James' readers, he prompts them to look through the difficulties of today and to desire the wisdom of God to endure. So really, two things happening in verses 2 through 8. Um, we see two words that are going to kind of guide our time together. Um, in verse 2, count it all joy. So we're going to talk together about joy. And then verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, we're going to talk together about wisdom this morning. So let's unpack these few verses for uh, this morning, verses 2 through 4 in particularly is where we start. So James starts out by writing, count it all joy, right? He writes, count it all joy. And I, I think that that's a, in some respects, that's a nice sentiment. It sounds good. I was, uh, I was friended by a high school acquaintance on Instagram this week, and they're, oddly enough, their, their bio, it read, count it all joy. Oh, okay, that, that's nice. Good. I think that this is something that is a high-level candidate, probably 10 out of 10 on the throw-pillow-verse list, right? If we're going to cross-stitch something on a throw-pillow, we talked about this in the past. If we're going to cross-stitch something on a throw-pillow, put it on the couch counter, and all joy is probably one that goes on there pretty well, right? Right? Yeah? Okay? Maybe not. Um... <clears throat> And then, but, but as we look at this, count it all joy then, he says, my brothers, but it's the next part that isn't so convenient that might not make it on the, the throw pillow. When you meet trials of various kinds, when you meet trials of various kinds, sometimes when we think about just count it all joy, when we see that sort of in a vacuum, um, we think to ourselves, hey guys, let's count it all joy, like, a, like it's a rally cry. 
Like, hey guys, rah, rah, let's count it all joy. But if you actually look at this and then consider what comes next in the second half of verse 2, you see that when he's saying count it all joy, it's a command. It's an imperative. It's not, it's not something that you get to do. It's not a suggestion. It's not, hey, guys, hey, I'm James. I'm the head of the church in Jerusalem. Hey, would you guys just consider counting it all joy? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, no, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. It's a firm command here to count it all joy. And this is why the historical context is important, because we can see very clearly then what his readers were going through. This social and economic oppression, because of what they believed, as Jewish Christians spread out, they, they experienced this social and economic oppression. He knew that they didn't have the opportunities that others had in their world. He knew that they would often be charged more for the same goods and services in their culture. He knew that they would be publicly shamed for what they believed. He knew that even their life might be in jeopardy at any point. He knew that their tendency as people, as Jewish Christians spread out, would not be to count it all joy but rather to manufacture a situation to relieve this economic, social persecution and pressure they felt. And as we go through this book, again, the idea of showing partiality to the rich, rich looking at people and saying, looking at the successful people in our culture, the, the successful people that culture tells us is successful, we're going to look at those people and then and, and elevate them to a high place in our minds and ignore the people who could not return a kind gesture. Again, we'll get there in time as we move through this book. So James is saying, when you face trials of various kinds because of this oppression that his readers were going through, these things are not that different from the things that we go through in our own world, although maybe a little bit more amplified, but notice here then in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So what he says, for you know that the testing of your faith, which is just sort of another way of saying trials, right? The testing of your faith, these trials, results in steadfastness. So we can then look back at what he says in verse 2 and say, not counting it joy does not produce steadfastness. <clears throat> and then we get a second command in verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect. This is permission that we're giving to the steadfastness to have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The results of this command, letting steadfastness have its full effect, the result is to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We look at this and say, wow, what? We can be perfect for real? And the answer is no, not here. There is an eternal perspective in this text that we need to glean. James has eternity in view steadfastness and endurance in the face of trials here in the temporary results in the realization of completion, perfection, your Bible might say maturity in eternity. So do we see then why counting it all joy is in trials is important? Because it produces steadfastness. 
which is necessary then to receive or to bring about completion in our lives. This is endurance. This is living our lives in complete submission to the Lordship of Jesus in order that we might come to the end of our life and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the fruit of the Christian life being borne out over the course of 75-ish trips around the sun. So do we see then what counting it all joy is, right? So you say, okay, that's good, but what does it mean to count it all joy? And I think that what we've thought about throughout the course of the, these first three verses, or these first, uh, or these two through four here is this. That counting it all joy is seeing through the immediate, looking directly through the immediate, and seeing the eternal the things that we go through in this, on this earth are temporary. They are temporary. They are not eternal. And so when, jo when, when James admonishes his readers to count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, he is saying, count it all joy because the things that you're enduring right now are temporary. They're not ultimate. They're not final. Look through it. He's not saying count your trials as joy. He's saying look through the trial and see on the other side of it is eternal joy granted to you in Jesus Christ. So, what he's saying is all that is here, all that we see, all that we perceive, touch, feel, whatever we sense here on earth is temporary. This isn't, this isn't all there is. And what this isn't saying to us, and if we do take the first, those first few words in verse 2 in a vacuum and we say, count it all joy, then in reality, this is sort of some stupid, ignorant kind of thing that says the, the tough stuff just doesn't matter, Hakuna Matata or whatever Lion King stuff you want to say. That's not what this is saying. What it's saying is, it's not saying ignore the trials, it's saying look through them to the eternity and understand their proper place in eternity. That they're producing in you steadfastness, endurance that will bring you to the end of your life to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. It's actively understanding that the stuff you're going through is actually producing something. I've heard this too many times in Christian circles and my resolution for 2016 is to tell you the way it is. It is, I, I just resolved that. It is a demonic lie from the pit of hell that your trials, your difficulties, and your suffering is meaningless. That is a complete lie. Everything that you go through is producing something in you here on earth. It might not seem like it, but this is the truth of God's word given to us. James does not say to his readers, count it all joy when you meet trials because they're meaningless. If that was the case, nothing that follows would matter. We would be spending a couple months in the book of James because he would say, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds because they're meaningless. That would be the end of the letter. James might as well have not written it at all. You guys, he would have just said, you know what, just forget it. Hey, you guys are going through tough stuff out there? Hey, I'm sorry about that. That's a real bummer. But he doesn't say that. If you don't hear me say anything else this morning, hear me say this. If steadfastness and endurance are an important part of the Christian life, then we better get a perspective on trials and suffering. 
That's what James is giving to us. If steadfastness and endurance are an important part of the Christian life, we better get a perspective on trials and suffering. The answer is, how? How are we going to do that? James works it out for us in the next few verses. Verses 5 through 8. He starts talking then about sort of our second idea this morning, our second theme, wisdom. He says, Count it all joy in my trials so that I can be steadfast and endures. That sounds, that sounds really great. But what James doesn't give us, give us in verses 5 through 8 is like a five easy steps or something like that. He doesn't give us a, hey, here's a laundry list or a BuzzFeed article or whatever it is that we read on the internet. Like, yeah, whatever. But he actually gives us another command, right? Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, here's the command, let him ask God. Why would we ask God? Because he gives generously to all without reproach. What is the result of asking God? It is, it, it, it will be given to him. So the, 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 the if-then statement there, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, that first part is a little bit rhetorical, right? Because which one of us in this room could say, no, we're perfectly wise, let's just skip this part. Let's go past it. It's okay. This is not a big deal. Okay, five through eight. Okay, let's just move on to nine. It's a bit rhetorical. No one here on earth is fully wise. It's a simple then to the if then, right? There's not anything really uniquely profound about this. not anything hard to understand. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. It's simply an admonition or a command, an imperative to ask. And the answer why God is generous. Um, when we think about wisdom in a biblical sense, we think about wisdom as it pertains to day-to-day. The Bible does not use the word wisdom in any other way than other, other than discernment for the day-to-day. Um, if you don't know how to handle difficulties that you're facing, ask God for wisdom. That's what James is saying. If you don't know how to under, understand or to recognize or to face the trials for today... You ask God for wisdom. And James doesn't say to take it away. You, he asks for wisdom. And James tells us then to, or tells his readers to ask in faith. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This is going to come up again, so we're going to talk about faith in a more robust way. Um, I had this big thing Thing, but we're not going to get there this morning because it's it, my time is drawing near. But, but this is this understanding here, this understanding of faith that James has is is one that is really important for us. What so the simple question that we'll ask this morning is: What does it mean to ask in faith? What does it mean to ask in faith? Um, I think sometimes our tendency is to do this. It's to say, well, not sure how this is all going to work out, but I guess I'll ask. That's kind of our mentality. But James wants his readers to rest in the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of the world. And that's what this is about. Asking in faith is resting and trusting and believing the wisdom of God and not exclusively the wisdom of the world. But rather exclusively the wisdom of God. Working hard to avoid persecution and difficulties like James readers were and the trials that come in this life. 
We're trying to avoid those. That's what the world tells us to do. James is saying, count it all joy when trials come, and asking for godly wisdom to handle them and maintain focus on eternity is what James, James is talking about. Saying, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. And if you don't know how to, how to deal with them, how to face them, how to look through them and see eternity, then what you need to do is ask for godly wisdom. God is faithful to his promises. Scripture is very clear about that. God is always faithful to every one of his promises, and every single one of his promises finds its yes in Jesus. So if you lack the wisdom of God, you will receive it if you ask in faith as one who trusts in godly wisdom that God will give you the wisdom that he has promised to you. So this brings us then to sort of a couple of thoughts about wisdom and how it comes, comes about. Wisdom is something that sometimes feels like an ethereal thing. It doesn't feel like something that we can grasp or touch or hold on to or um, sense really in our world. We know when we see it, but we're not really sure what it is and how to define it. Um, that's kind of the way that I feel that the, that the Christian culture has kind of thought about wisdom for, for a long time. We hear about wisdom and we say, God, give us wisdom. But then we sort of expect just a light bulb to go on in our mind, Right? It's like a light bulb. Oh, I know what to do now. And then we go and do it. But in reality, that's not, that's not the way that it works typically. Um, and so just three simple things then um, that I think are ways that God imparts wisdom to us. Um, firstly, firstly is this. Um, one very simple way is God's word. I think when we ask the question of God, if we, if we say to God, let if, if, when, when James writes, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. If we do that, if we obey in obedience, ask him to do that, we will have a spirit-prompted, increased affection or desire for God's word. Right? Because if this is the truth of who God is, and God is revealing himself to us through it, then to go to it is the source of wisdom. If God's revelation of himself to us is the source of wisdom, then time and scripture will impart wisdom to us. So if we say, if we ask God, then we can expect then an increased desire and affection for his word, his direct revelation about who he is. Um, the second is kind of tied up in the command. The second is prayer. We'll have an increased desire to spend time meditating on God's work for us in Jesus. We'll have an increased desire or affection to spend time meditating on God's work for us in Jesus and the wisdom that is imparted to us in Scripture. Um, then we will, we will also have an increased desire to confess the sin that we have that clouds the, 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 the judgment that we have and the, the wisdom, our ability to see the world with godly wisdom. We'll go to God and we will say, you know what, like I am a finite, um, fallible creature and you, God, are infinite and infallible and so I need to come to you and to understand um, and have wisdom and the affection um, for God will grow and wisdom will be imparted to us 
And then thirdly, God's word, prayer, and thirdly, commitment to the local church. And this is probably the one that we don't like and why what Mark said this morning is so important. Because if we see the glory of God revealed to us in the people who are around us, right? Which is the absolute truth. God's image is placed on people. If we get irritated with people, if we think about people in a, in a demeaning way, and the guy who sits across from the cubicle us, from us at work who drinks way too much Mountain Dew and smells funny, if we don't see the glory of God in that individual, um, then we won't see this. We won't, we won't be able to see the, or understand what James is communicating to us here. But commitment to the local church, to this body together, being committed to one another, to be committed to carry out the one another's of Scripture, to love one another, to encourage one another, to stir one another up to love and good work, to bear one another's burdens, to do all of those things together, the commitment to the local church. Um, if we pray for wisdom, we will have an increased desire to be around the people here who point us to the good news of Jesus Christ. If we pray for wisdom, we'll have an increased affection for godly counsel given to us by our brothers and sisters who are situated together in Buffalo City Church. God will grant you that counsel um, that is godly when difficulties come. So when you obey this command in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. You can expect that it will be given to you through an increased affection for God's Word, through an increased affection to spend time with God in prayer, and for an increased affection for the people of the local church. Okay. So then, just in conclusion this morning, just one more thought. We have to, ultimately we keep in view that there is only one who did this all perfectly, Right? I'm going to read this to you. This is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And this ties in so beautifully. My mind was blown when, I, when, when the Spirit brought this to my mind this week in preparation. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Listen. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who for, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I hope that you see the parallels here. Jesus saw the cross. He saw the cross, the ultimate expression of trial and suffering. He saw the cross, and in an ultimate act of submission... And the greatest expression of suffering ever known in our world and looked right through it to eternity. That is what James is compelling his readers to do. He's saying, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds because this isn't the end. Because this isn't the end. This suffering that you're enduring is not the end. Look through it. Jesus looked through the cross. We have a great high priest who can sympathize with every single one of our weaknesses. Every single one of the things that we go through, Jesus can sympathize with. And when those things came to him in the form of a cross, he looked through it and saw eternity. 
We ask for wisdom from God to see the, the way that Jesus, see our suffering and trials the way that Jesus suffered. We also see here that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, so what James admonishes his readers to, let him ask in faith, ask for faith, ask in faith for godly wisdom. Jesus both gives faith and is the one who offers it. And sets the example for it. The reality is that you and I are not going to adhere to this command to count it all joy. We are going to get stuck down. We're going to get stuck in our trials and our suffering and our tribulations and our difficulties every single day. And we're going to have a myopic view. We're not going to look forward into the future and understand what God is producing in us. That steadfastness that James says is coming about to us. We're going to ignore godly wisdom and brush off the means by which that wisdom comes. But God, in Jesus, counted it all joy in the face of of trials and trusted the Father perfectly and His Spirit resides in us and grants us the ability to do the same. So this morning as we conclude then, we're going to go to the table together. We're going to participate together in the Lord's Supper. This is a great place to start in 2017 is to participate together in the Lord's Supper. Like I said at the outset, the New Testament church would have eaten a meal together. This isn't a meal. This isn't going to sustain you. You're still going to go eat Applebee's or whatever you're going to do after this. But we're going to take the bread. We're going to remember Jesus' body broken on our behalf. So that we, although we might not count it all joy in every situation when we face these trials, we will, in fact, hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, because we have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we will understand as we drink the juice this morning that our sin has been washed away because of Jesus' atoning work on the cross. So this morning, um, as we move then to the table, I would just pray that you reflect on uh, your upcoming week. For many of us, we're going back to work or after holidays or whatever it might be. Consider the fact that things are going to happen this week that are going to be difficult, they're going to be hard, they're going to be trials. We look through those things to eternity. Ask God to grant you the ability to look through those things to see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the shed blood, the broken body on your behalf. So as we do this, I'm just going to invite you, as your, your heart is prompted, to come up to grab the elements. You can take them up here or you can take them back to your seat and just partake when you're prepared. Um, the worship team will come and play and we will... Um, and we will uh, just reflect on God's goodness to us. Again, parents of young children, I ask you to, uh, to, to discern here for, on behalf of your children, if they have trusted Jesus um, and made a credible profession of faith, that that is something that they can participate in together. I'm here at Buffalo City Church. If you are, you don't have to be a member here. If you are, uh, have trusted Jesus, we would invite you to participate together in the Lord's Supper. If you're not sure where you stand, one, I'd love to talk to you. Two, um, just... Just don't participate this morning. It's very important. This is something that we together as believers in Jesus participate in together. So let me pray for us, and we'll move together to the Lord's table.